Part 1, Chapter 8 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marx Averling This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 8 The Chateau, a modern building in Italian style with two projecting wings and three flights of steps, lay at the foot of an immense greensward on which some cows were grazing among groups of large trees set out at regular intervals, while large beds of arbutus, rhododendron, syringes and guelder roses bulged out their irregular clusters of green along the curve of the gravel path. A river flowed under a bridge. Through the mist one could distinguish buildings with thatched roofs scattered over the field bordered by two gently sloping, well-timbered hillocks, and in the background amid the trees rose in two parallel lines the coach-houses and stables, all that was left of the ruined old chateau. Charles Dogcart pulled up before the middle flight of steps. Servants appeared. The Marquis came forward and, offering his arm to the doctor's wife, conducted her to the vestibule. It was paved with marble slabs, was very lofty, and the sounds of footsteps and that of voices re-echoed through it as in a church. Opposite rose a straight staircase, and on the left a gallery overlooking the garden led to the billiard-room, through whose door one could hear the click of the ivory balls. As she crossed it to go to the drawing-room, Emma saw standing round the table men with grave faces, their chins resting on high cravats. They all wore orders and smiled silently as they made their strokes. On the dark wainscoting of the walls, large gold frames bore at the bottom names written in black letters. She read Jean-Antoine d'Andervillers de Vervombille, Count de la Vaubiersade, and Baron de la Freyne, killed at the Battle of Coutras on the 20th of October, 1587. And on another, Jean-Antoine Henri Guy d'Andervillers de la Vaubiersade, Admiral of France and Chevalier of the Order of Saint-Michel, wounded at the Battle of Hougesaint Saint-Vast on the 29th of May, 1692, died at Vaubiersade on the 23rd of January, 1693. One could hardly make out those that followed, for the light of the lamps lowered over the green cloth threw a dim shadow round the room. Burnishing the horizontal pictures, it broke up against these in delicate lines where there were cracks in the varnish, and from all these great black squares framed in with gold stood out here and there some lighter portion of the painting, a pale brow, two eyes that looked at you, perukes flowing over and powdering red-coated shoulders, or the buckle of a garter above a well-rounded calf. The Marquis opened the drawing-room door. One of the ladies, the Marchioness herself, came to meet Emma. She made her sit down by her on an ottoman, and began talking to her as amicably as if she had known her a long time. She was a woman of about forty, with fine shoulders, a hooked nose, a drawling voice, and on this evening she wore, over her brown hair, a simple guipure fichu that fell in a point at the back. A fair young woman sat in a high-backed chair in a corner, and gentlemen with flowers in their buttonholes were talking to ladies round the fire. At seven, dinner was served. The men, who were in the majority, sat down at the first table in the vestibule, 
the ladies at the second in the dining room, with the Marquis and Marchioness. Emma, on entering, felt herself wrapped round by the warm air, a blending of the perfume of flowers and of the fine linen, of the fumes of the viands, and the odour of the truffles. The silver dish covers reflected the lighted wax candles in the candelabra. The cut crystal covered with light steam reflected from one to the other pale rays. Bouquets were placed in a row the whole length of the table, and in the large-bordered plates each napkin, arranged after the fashion of a bishop's mitre, held between its two gaping folds a small oval-shaped roll. The red claws of lobsters hung over the dishes. Rich fruit in open baskets was piled up on moss. There were quails in their plumage, smoke was rising, and in silk stockings, knee-breeches, white cravat and frilled shirt, the steward, grave as a judge, offering ready-carved dishes between the shoulders of the guests with a touch of the spoon gave you the piece chosen. On the large stove of porcelain inlaid with copper baguettes, the statue of a woman, draped to the chin, gazed motionless on the room full of life. Madame Bovary noticed that many ladies had not put their gloves in their glasses. But at the upper end of the table, alone amongst all these women, bent over his full plate and his napkin tied round his neck like a child, an old man sat eating, letting drops of gravy drip from his mouth. His eyes were bloodshot, and he wore a little queue tied with black ribbon. He was the Marquis's father-in-law, the old Duc de Lavadiere, once on a time favourite of the Count d'Artois in the days of the Vendry hunting parties at the Marquis de Conflans, and had been, it was said, the lover of Queen Marie Antoinette between Monsieur de Coigny and Monsieur de Lausanne. He had lived a life of noisy debauch, full of duels, bets, elopements. He had squandered his fortune and frightened all his family. A servant behind his chair named aloud to him in his ear the dishes that he pointed to stammering, and constantly Emma's eyes turned involuntarily to this old man with hanging lips as to something extraordinary. He had lived at court and slept in the bed of queens. Iced champagne was poured out. Emma shivered all over as she felt it cold in her mouth. She had never seen pomegranates nor tasted pineapples, the powdered sugar even seemed to her whiter and finer than elsewhere. The ladies afterwards went to their rooms to prepare for the ball. Emma made her toilette with the fastidious care of an actress on her debut. She did her hair according to the directions of the hairdresser and put on the barège dress spread out upon the bed. Charles' trousers were tight across the belly. "'My trouser straps will be rather awkward for dancing,' he said." Dancing, repeated Emma. Yes. Why, you must be mad. They would make fun of you. Keep your place. Besides, it is more becoming for a doctor, she added. Charles was silent. He walked up and down, waiting for Emma to finish dressing. He saw her from behind in the glass between two lights. Her black eyes seemed blacker than ever. Her hair, undulating towards the ears, shone with a blue luster, a rose in her chignon trembled on its mobile stalk with artificial dewdrops on the tip of the leaves. She wore a gown of pale saffron trimmed with three bouquets of pompon roses mixed with green. Charles came and kissed her on her shoulder. 
Let me alone, she said. You are tumbling me. One could hear the flourish of the violin and the notes of a horn. She went downstairs, restraining herself from running. Dancing had begun. Guests were arriving. There was some crushing. She sat down on a form near the door. The quadrille over, the floor was occupied by groups of men standing up and talking and servants in livery bearing large trays. Along the line of seated women, painted fans were fluttering, bouquets half-hid smiling faces, and gold-stoppered scent bottles were turned in partly closed hands whose white gloves outlined the nails and tightened on the flesh at the wrists. Lace trimmings, diamond brooches, medallion bracelets trembled on bodices, gleamed on breasts, clinked on bare arms. The hair, well smoothed over the temples and knotted at the nape, bore crowns or bunches or sprays of myosotis, jasmine, pomegranate blossoms, ears of corn and cornflowers. Calmly seated in their places, mothers with forbidding countenances were wearing red turbans. Emma's heart beat rather faster when, her partner holding her by the tips of the fingers, she took her place in a line with the dancers and waited for the first note to start. But her emotion soon vanished, and swaying to the rhythm of the orchestra, she glided forward with slight movements of the neck. A smile rose to her lips at certain delicate phrases of the violin that sometimes played alone while the other instruments were silent. One could hear the clear clink of the louis d'or that were being thrown down upon the card tables in the next room. Then all struck again, the cornet at piston uttered its sonorous note, feet marked time, skirts swelled and rustled, hands touched and parted, the same eyes falling before you met yours again. A few men, some fifteen or so, of twenty-five to forty, scattered here and there among the dancers or talking at the doorways, distinguished themselves from the crowd by a certain air of breeding, whatever their differences in age, dress or face. Their clothes, better made, seemed of finer cloth, and their hair, brought forward in curls towards the temples, glossy with more delicate pomades. They had the complexion of wealth, that clear complexion that is heightened by the pallor of porcelain, the shimmer of satin, the veneer of old furniture, and that an ordered regimen of exquisite nurture maintains at its best. Their necks moved easily in their low cravats, their long whiskers fell over their turned-down collars, they wiped their lips upon handkerchiefs with embroidered initials that gave forth a subtle perfume. Those who were beginning to grow old had an air of youth, while there was something mature in the faces of the young. In their unconcerned looks was the calm of passions daily satiated, and through all their gentleness of manner pierced that peculiar brutality, the result of a command of half-easy things, in which force is exercised and vanity amused, the management of thoroughbred horses and the society of loose women. A few steps from Emma, a gentleman in a blue coat was talking of Italy with a pale young woman wearing a parure of pearls. They were praising the breadth of the columns of St. Peter's, Tivoli, Vesuvius, Castellamer and Cassine, the Roses of Genoa, the Colosseum by Moonlight. With her other ear, Emma was listening to a conversation full of words she did not understand. 
a circle gathered round a very young man who the week before had beaten Miss Arabella and Romulus and won two thousand louis jumping a ditch in England. One complained that his racehorses were growing fat, another of the printer's error that had disfigured the name of his horse. The atmosphere of the ball was heavy, the lamps were growing dim. Guests were flocking to the billiard-room. A servant got upon a chair and broke the window-panes. At the crash of the glass, Madame Bovary turned her head and saw in the garden the faces of peasants pressed against the window, looking in at them. Then the memory of the Berteau came back to her. She saw the farm again, the muddy pond, her father in a blouse under the apple-trees, and she saw herself again as formerly, skimming with her finger the cream off the milk-pans in the dairy. But in the refulgence of the present hour, her past life, so distinct until then, faded away completely, and she almost doubted having lived it. She was there. Beyond the ball was only shadow overspreading all the rest. She was just eating a maraschino ice that she held with her left hand in a silver gilt cup, her eyes half closed and the spoon between her teeth. A lady near her dropped her fan. A gentleman was passing. Would you be so good, said the lady, as to pick up my fan that has fallen behind the sofa? The gentleman bowed, and as he moved to stretch out his arm, Emma saw the hand of a young woman throw something white, folded in a triangle, into his hat. The gentleman, picking up the fan, offered it to the lady respectfully. She thanked him with an inclination of the head, and began smelling her bouquet. After supper, where were plenty of Spanish and Rhine wines, soup à la bisque and au lait d'amande, pudding à la Trafalgar, and all sorts of cold meats with jellies that trembled in the dishes, the carriages, one after the other, began to drive off. Raising the corners of the muslin curtain, one could see the light of their lanterns glimmering through the darkness. The seats began to empty. Some card-players were still left. The musicians were cooling the tips of their fingers on their tongues. Charles was half asleep, his back propped against a door. At three o'clock the cotillion began. Emma did not know how to waltz. Everyone was waltzing, Mademoiselle Don de Villiers herself and the Marquis. Only the guests staying at the castle were still there, about a dozen persons. One of the waltzers, however, who was familiarly called Viscount, and whose low-cut waistcoat seemed moulded to his chest, came a second time to ask Madame Bovary to dance, assuring her that he would guide her, and that she would get through it very well. They began slowly, then went more rapidly. They turned. All round them was turning, the lamps, the furniture, the wainscoting, the floor, like a disc on a pivot. On passing near the doors, the bottom of Emma's dress caught against his trousers. Their legs commingled. He looked down at her. She raised her eyes to his. A torpor seized her. She stopped. They started again, and with a more rapid movement, the Viscount, dragging her along, disappeared with her to the end of the gallery, where, panting, she almost fell, and for a moment rested her head upon his breast. And then, still turning but more slowly, he guided her back to her seat. She leant back against the wall and covered her eyes with her hands. 
When she opened them again, in the middle of the drawing room, three waltzers were kneeling before a lady sitting on a stool. She chose the Viscount, and the violin struck up once more. Everyone looked at them. They passed and repassed, she with rigid body, her chin bent down, and he always in the same pose, his figure curved, his elbow rounded, his chin thrown forward. That woman knew how to waltz. They kept up a long time and tired out all the others. Then they talked a few moments longer, and after the good nights, or rather good mornings, the guests of the chateau retired to bed. Charles dragged himself up by the balusters. His knees were going up into his body. He had spent five consecutive hours standing bolt upright at the card tables, watching them play whist without understanding anything about it, and it was with a deep sigh of relief that he pulled off his boots. Emma threw a shawl over her shoulders, opened the window, and leant out. The night was dark. Some drops of rain were falling. She breathed in the damp wind that refreshed her eyelids. The music of the ball was still murmuring in her ears, and she tried to keep herself awake in order to prolong the illusion of this luxurious life that she would soon have to give up. Day began to break. She looked long at the windows of the chateau, trying to guess which were the rooms of all those she had noticed the evening before. She would fain have known their lives, have penetrated, blended with them. But she was shivering with cold. She undressed and cowered down between the sheets against Charles, who was asleep. There were a great many people to luncheon. The repast lasted ten minutes. No liqueurs were served, which astonished the doctor. Next, Mademoiselle d'Andervillers collected some pieces of roll in a small basket to take them to the swans on the ornamental waters, and they went to walk in the hothouses, where strange plants, bristling with hairs, rose in pyramids under hanging vases, whence, as from overfilled nests of serpents, fell long green cords interlacing. The orangery, which was at the other end, led by a covered way to the outhouses of the chateau, the Marquis, to amuse the young woman, took her to see the stables. Above the basket-shaped racks, porcelain slabs bore the names of the horses in black letters. Each animal in its stall whisked its tail when anyone went near and said, chuk, chuk. The boards of the harness room shone like the flooring of a drawing-room. The carriage harness was piled up in the middle against two twisted columns, and the bits, the whips, the spurs, the curbs were ranged in a line all along the wall. Charles, meanwhile, went to ask a groom to put his horse to. The dog-cart was brought to the foot of the steps, and all the parcels being crammed in, the Bovaries paid their respects to the Marquis and Marchioness, and set out again for Tostas. Emma watched the turning wheels in silence. Charles, on the extreme edge of the seat, held the reins with his two arms wide apart, and the little horse ambled along in the shafts that were too big for him. The loose reins hanging over his crupper were wet with foam, and the box fastened on behind the chaise gave great regular bumps against it. They were on the heights of Tibouville when suddenly some horsemen with cigars between their lips passed laughing. Emma thought she recognised the Viscount, 
turned back and caught on the horizon only the movement of their heads rising or falling with the unequal cadence of the trot or gallop. A mile further on they had to stop to mend with some string the traces that had broken. But Charles, giving a last look to the harness, saw something on the ground between his horse's legs, and he picked up a cigar case with a green silk border and beblazoned in the centre like the door of a carriage. There are even two cigars in it, said he. They'll do for this evening after dinner. Why, do you smoke, she asked. Sometimes, when I get a chance. He put his find in his pocket and whipped up the nag. When they reached home, the dinner was not ready. Madame lost her temper. Nastasi answered rudely. Leave the room, said Emma. You are forgetting yourself. I give you warning. For dinner... There was onion soup and a piece of veal with sorrel. Charles, seated opposite Emma, rubbed his hands gleefully. How good it is to be at home again! Nastasi could be heard crying. He was rather fond of the poor girl. She had formerly, during the wearisome time of his widowhood, kept him company many an evening. She had been his first patient, his oldest acquaintance in the place. "'Have you given her warning for good?' he asked at last. "'Yes, who is to prevent me?' she replied. Then they warmed themselves in the kitchen while their room was being made ready. Charles began to smoke. He smoked with lips protruding, spitting every moment, recoiling at every puff. "'You'll make yourself ill,' she said scornfully. He put down his cigar and ran to swallow a glass of cold water at the pump. Emma, seizing hold of the cigar case, threw it quickly to the back of the cupboard. The next day was a long one. She walked about her little garden, up and down the same walks, stopping before the beds, before the espalier, before the plaster curate, looking with amazement at all these things of once on a time that she knew so well. How far off the ball seemed already. What was it that thus set so far asunder the morning of the day before yesterday? and the evening of today. Her journey to Vaubiessard had made a hole in her life, like one of those great crevices that a storm will sometimes make in one night in mountains. Still, she was resigned. She devoutly put away in her drawers her beautiful dress, down to the satin shoes whose soles were yellowed with the slippery wax of the dancing floor. Her heart was like these, in its friction against wealth, Something had come over it that could not be effaced. The memory of this ball, then, became an occupation for Emma. Whenever the Wednesday came round, she said to herself as she awoke, Ah, I was there a week, a fortnight, three weeks ago. And little by little the faces grew confused in her remembrance. She forgot the tune of the quadrilles. She no longer saw the liveries and appointments so distinctly. Some details escaped her, but the regret remained with her. End of part one, chapter eight.